Today's scripture reading is from Mark, uh, chapter 8, verses 22 through chapter 9, verse 1. You also, if you have one of the Bibles from uh, the sides over there, it's page 720, or you could simply look at your message notes. Now, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate that very much. <clears throat> well, as many of you will know, we've just completed a two-year series on the epic story of the Bible. We started with Genesis 1 about two years ago, February, and we ended in Genesis, Revelation 21 and 22 just last week. It was a glorious experience. And in that process, we learned about the history of the whole world. Why we're here? What went wrong? 
how God fixed it and where this world is actually going. It was a great and epic story. And we discover that right in the middle, the central character in that story is the man whom we call Jesus. Now, we know about Jesus. His name is spoken the world over. He's perhaps the most famous person ever in history. Um, but we may, let's pause for a moment and think about how, just how astounding it is that 2,000-some years later, we're still talking about an obscure Jewish prophet, an obscure Jewish prophet. He lived what, what really should have been a very obscure life. At best, we should remember him alongside of other Jewish revolutionaries like Judas Maccabees or Simon Bar Kokhba. Maccabees, you know, a hundred or so years before Jesus. Simon Bar Kokhba about a hundred years after Jesus. Both revolutionaries of sorts or, or another. And really, that's the best we should hope for out of Jesus. Excuse me. But rather than finding, fading into the dusty pages of history books, Virtually the entire, entire world speaks his name today. And in fact, they mark their calendar based upon the time he arrived on the scene. This man called Jesus. There is the world before Christ, B.C., and there is the world after Christ arrived, A.D., which does not mean after his death, as some would say. It means Anno Domini, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We are now in the 2013th or 2018th year of our Lord, signifying that at his arrival, a, 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 a corner was turned in the page of history after which nothing else is the same, and everything since is the year of our Lord. Now, how is it that this man who had such a brief 30 to 33-year-old year life and died as a criminal at the hands of Roman and religious leaders, how was it that this man and his life had such an enormous impact on the future history of the world? How did that happen? Who was this man exactly? That's a question we're going to explore in the next couple of weeks as we make our way toward Easter. For more than, more than anything else, it is Easter morning, that Easter morning event which made Jesus, quite literally, a household name. It is what happened at Easter time many years ago that made his teachings more than just something we, we have relics back in the pack of, of ancient history books. He's the reason he's remembered today. And so in order to do that, we're going to pick up the story of Jesus in the middle of what is likely to have been the very first biography ever written about him, the Gospel of Mark. Richard read the middle part of it for you. We're going to pick up in the middle of that story. And in fact, the very question that we're going to be looking at is found right in this text when Jesus says to his friends, who do people say that I am? And then after they gave him some answers, he said, but what about you? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? Those are very poignant questions, and questions would still come to us some 2,000 years later. We might ask the question, and we will today, who do people say that I am? And then also, who does the Scripture say that Jesus was? But more poignantly and fundamentally, what do you say? What do you say 
about about Jesus. We want to be thinking about Jesus in these weeks as we move rapidly towards this uh, Holy Week, the celebration of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So let's take a look at this question. Who is Jesus? Who exactly is this guy? Now, I know it's hard for us to kind of... uh, bring our minds back to the awareness of just how astounding it is that we're still talking about that guy. It's amazing that we're talking about him. Who was this guy? Now, people have always had many ideas about Jesus. If you ask the average person today, they could say many things about Jesus. Many people would say, well, he was a, a, he was a prophet. I'd rather not stand. I feel a little extra tall underneath there. He was a prophet, or he was a, an ethical teacher, or he was a revolutionary, or he was a deluded maniac, megalomaniac. Who knows? People have many ideas. Most people feel fondly about Jesus. But who exactly was Jesus? He's respected the world over by every religious tradition, virtually. As far as I know, he's respected by every religious tradition, not just Christian, the Christian tradition, and he's respected by people who are naturalists or secularists who have no religious tradition at all. He's respected as a good leader and good teacher. But who exactly was he? Well, Mark is written in part to answer that question, and it comes to a point right here in the middle of that text, in the middle of that uh, that, that book, uh, the eighth chapter, there are 16 in Mark. So right in the middle of the class, he's been leading towards the answer to this question, who is Jesus? So let's just quickly remind ourselves or rewind a little bit to the beginning of this book and see in the gospel of Mark, Jesus suddenly shows up on the scene. Unlike Matthew and Luke, we have no birth narrative for Jesus. He just shows up on the scene saying, I'm a prophet, and in the tradition of, uh, of, of Isaiah and John the Baptist before me, I've come to announce the kingdom of God. He arrives on the scene announcing the kingdom of God, and we see him in the first few chapters as an incredible miracle worker. He has power that no one had ever seen before. Power over sickness. Sickness flees in his presence. Power over demonic activity. Demons run away from him in his presence. Power even over nature. He actually stands up to the sea and speaks to it, says, be quiet, as if he's talking to a disobedient child. That's crazy. And yet what happened? The seas were immediately calm. He sat down. And the disciples in that story in the Gospel of Mark, you can read it, whereas the moment before they were incredibly afraid of the sea, now they're afraid of the guy sitting in the boat. It says they were fearful and they asked the question, in, not in the Mark account, but in Luke's account, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This question swirls around the beginning of this book. Who is this guy? What's he all about? What's he doing? He's an incredible power over, over sickness, over demons, over, over nature. He's an incredible miracle worker. We also see him as an incredible teacher in this book. He is, he's people spellbound with his stories. Now, Mark has fewer stories in it than any of the other gospel writers. He wants to show Jesus as a man of action, a man who gets things done. Uh, so he doesn't tell lots of the stories, that some, but he tells many of them just the same. And he would have these incredible stories about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in the fourth chapter. 
it says, it's like a man who casts seed on the ground, and some of it sprouts, and some of it doesn't, and some of it, uh, uh, it vanishes quite away, and some of it turns. This is the result of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, he says, it's like a mustard seed. You, you plant it in the ground, and and uh, and it uh, uh, and it grows up and it becomes a much. It's the smallest plant, but it grows. Kingdom of God, he says, is like leaven in the lump of the, of, of bread. It sprouts and it it grows from the inside out. The kingdom of God are like these things. These incredible stories. People are captivated by him. They're following him. They listen. And in in fact, in this Mark, he talks about two times when Jesus actually took bread, small pieces of bread or fish and uh, loaves, and he uh, uh, and and he fed thousands of people. Five. 5,000 at one time, 4,000 another time. Who is this guy? He's an incredible miracle worker. He's an incredible teacher, and he's an incredible leader. Many people are falling around him. Uh, he actually calls people to himself. Most rabbis didn't do that. They just began to, uh, began to teach, and people just began to follow around. But Jesus took the initiative and said, hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I'll make you fish fish. I'll make you fish for people. I want you to be part of my kingdom. And people were following, as I said, when he did the miracle of the loaves and the fish, once for 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people, and once for 4,000, probably 10 or 12,000 people. An incredible leader. People are following him. But he's an enigma, too. He keeps telling people not to talk about him. He'll heal someone and say, don't tell anybody. It happened just in this story. Healed the guy, blind man, don't tell anybody. In fact, when he healed the guy, he took him outside the city so he could heal him privately. And when he had healed him, he said, don't tell anybody. Why is he doing that? Sometimes he even drives people away, and he seems to be not very well appreciated by the religious elite. They're, they're, uh, they're uh, um, you know, threatened by him. He's doing stuff that should have been done in the temple. He's doing it himself. He sees a man in the second chapter of Mark. A man comes in while he's teaching, and all of a sudden the roof starts to come down, and the guy's dropped in from the roof. He's, he's a paralyzed man. His friends dropped him down, and he looks at the man, and after he looks and wonders what happened to the roof, I'm wondering, he looks at the man, he looks at his friends, and he says these words, son, your sins are forgiven. And Everybody's astounded. They're thinking, especially the religious people standing on the outskirts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And implicit in that is the... Some of you know, when I, whenever I touch something like this, I get a little scared. <laughs> Believe it or not, I got shocked one time doing this. Uh, not on this, but uh, when we had a different canopy. Um, uh, the, the, the place where forgiveness was granted was in the temple. That's what the temple was all about. You came and made your, practice, your sacrifices, you received forgiveness. That's what it was there for. Here he is just in a house, possibly, very probably, I think, Jesus' own house. Um, uh, I don't know, but I tend to kind of assume that. And he's forgiving people right there. And uh, they, who is this that can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or? Turning to the man, he says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he went walking and he went out of there. Yeah, and then they went, they right away are wondering, what is going on? Jesus is doing things, he's, 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 uh, he, he's doing things on his own that should have been done in the temple. He's not saying go to the temple. He's saying, I can forgive you right here, yeah. Only God forgives sins. Not why is he th- who does he think he is? Oh, that's the question. Who does Jesus think he is? So he tends to drive away the religious 
people. And what made it worse for them is they kept seeing him hang around the wrong kind of people. He's coming announcing the kingdom of God. And, and the, the tradition of that day was that the kingdom of God would come to worthy people. That's why so many were so eager to follow the law so closely, to be, make sure that when the kingdom of God came, when the Messiah came, he would come, he would find them worthy. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God, and he's inviting everybody into the kingdom. All the kind of no goods. He says, you're all welcome. He came into the buffalo chip and said, let's have church here, right? This is a perfect place. And people didn't understand. So he was an enigma. People were confused about him. Who was this guy? Mark, as he's telling this story, is wanting to tell us all of this and bring it, I think, to a head here in this, uh, in this eighth chapter. In this eighth chapter, we find that he, we, we find, uh, uh, ironically, the only people that seem to really know who Jesus is are the demons. They're the demons. They know who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet and come out of him, Jesus said, right? So, uh, no one seems to really know. And so, in this eighth chapter, uh, Mark, as he's putting together these stories about Jesus, he, he describes uh, some various things. I didn't have space to print it all in the eighth chapter, uh, uh, but uh, uh, we see that Jesus feeds the 4,000. The Pharisees come, and they, 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 uh, they argue from him in the 11th and 12th verse, and so, and Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples, they are, they're dense. They think he's talking, they say to one another, hey, he's, he's saying this because we forgot to bring bread. Now, they just walked away from Jesus feeding 4,000, right, with a single loaf. And he thinks Jesus say, hey, did you save me any lunch? Why didn't you save me any lunch? They're in a boat when this happens. <laughs> he says, and it says in the, 11, uh, the verses following this beautiful way, he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, what are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Notice the word see. Do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember when I, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, uh, 12. This is, I'm reading the Bible here, believe it or not. 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets are full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, uh, Peter, what are you, how'd you count? No, they didn't, that's not it. Just as they said, seven, seven, yeah. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Implicit as this story developed is the fact that someone has arrived on this scene announcing the kingdom of God, doing a lot of the things that would be expected, and yet doing many things that would be never expected. Who is this guy? Even his disciples seem to be clueless. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? And it's right after that that we come into the text which Richard read for you. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man. What did, the, what did Mark just talk about? Don't you see? Don't you understand to his disciples, right? They come to a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He goes away, out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, Do you see? Do you see anything? And this is the only time this happens in all the stories of Jesus. Well, look what happens. And he looked up and he said, 
I see men, but they, they look like trees walking. It's like it didn't work the first time. What's going on here? What's going on? And, and so then Jesus, well, says, let's try it again. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He said, uh, I, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home. What's going on? Now, Jesus, we know, healed all different kinds of ways, all different kinds. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he took two tries. He didn't have a hard time making, I don't know what's going on. Let me try this again. What is Jesus doing? Whenever this, the miracle is described, there's a reason why he did it that way. And it wasn't for his sake, and it wasn't for the man's sake. It was for the disciples' sake, because he wanted them to see that they needed time to be able to see what was going on. What we have here is that these disciples who hadn't been seeing are now going to see, because the very next thing that happens is Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter finally sees through the eyes of faith, you are the Christ. You see, Jesus has done this miracle right before this event in order to make the response that people's eyes are beginning to become open. They're beginning to open. Yes, yes. And so we see that following that, then they begin now, excuse me, verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi is still a two-hour drive. So it took them a lot longer. They're on their way. They're camping, right, Christopher? They're camping on the way down. They just got to stand along the way, and uh, they're on their way down to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an important city. It's where Herod kept his temple. It was a seat of Roman power. And on the way towards Roman power, as you can see it from far away, I'm told. I've never been there. Uh, you see it from far away. He, I imagine him standing on the side of a hill with the Capitol building behind him somewhere, right? The temple, the palace behind him somewhere, and asking this poignant question, on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And They told him, John the Baptist, and others say, uh, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Now, Matthew and Luke give us more extended versions of this, but Mark, in typical fashion, is very succinct. You are the Messiah. And he said, now don't tell anyone. It's like, now, you guys find, I've been doing this, so you'd all begin to see what's going on, and you're beginning to see, don't tell anyone. And so now they're on their way to the, now he has them on board, and he's going to act like the Messiah. And the Messiah, to us, that would be the word Christ. We think of Christ the Messiah, but think of it, the easiest way to think about it is Peter was saying to Jesus, you are Israel's promised king. You are the true king. Because that's what the Messiah meant. It meant the anointed one. And the anointed one in the Israel scriptures was the king, God's, God's representative leader among his people, the anointed one. Basically, these were revolutionary words. These were campaign words. You are the next president of the United States, we might say. That's the image. You are the, don't tell anyone. 
all right? Because as soon as everyone begins, where was the one time when the crowd really all said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest, save us now. When did they do that? Palm Sunday. And how long before Jesus was dead? Four or five days. So it's, you've got to be careful. These are revolutionary words. You are the Messiah. This self-identity of Jesus, he would discover that he wasn't just announcing a kingdom. He was bringing the kingdom. The kingdom was present within himself. It was John the Baptist who was announcing the king. It is Jesus who is the king, the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised King, what a, uh, can you imagine what the disciples might have said as they finally say the words that all of them have been thinking? You're the Messiah. They're thinking, well, let's make some billboards. Let's start a campaign. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's march in the temple. Let's gather the troops. Let's do all of that. But that's not what happened, is it? What is it that did happen? Now Jesus says, Essentially, he's saying this, yes, I am the king. Now, let me tell you what my kingdom is like. Let me tell you what kind of king I am going to be. Very next words. And this is the first time this comes up in Mark, is here. It happens three times in the next three chapters. This this teaching happens three times in the next three chapters when he says these things after the disciples had finally recognized, you are the king, you are the Messiah. What does he say? It says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, that would make zero sense to his followers. Zero sense. And it's even worse than suffering if you read it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man let me pause for a moment. We think of the Son of Man as Jesus being a way of referring to himself, but they would have thought of it in terms of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is spoken of. It's another messianic kind of a title or a, a, a special deliverer of God. And the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And I know he says, and after three days rise again, but they never heard that part. In fact, they would have no way to fathom that that was part of God's real plan, that Jesus somehow would conquer death and conquer evil by apparently submitting to death and evil and through it then diffusing it of all of its power so that he could rose victorious. They could not have seen that that was what God was going to do. But he was going to be a suffering king. This would be utterly inconceivable to them. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And it says, and he said this plainly, plainly. Now think about Peter because he comes up next in the story. Peter was the guy who had spoken on behalf of, oh, it's nice over here too. Peter was the guy who had spoken on behalf of all the disciples. He says, you are the Christ. In another, the phrase, another saying of it, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So now Peter's feeling encouraged. And so he feels like Jesus needs to be put into his place. 
And so Peter says, takes him aside, and he says, for, uh, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word rebuke is a strong word to us, and it was. Jesus rebuked the demons, okay? Peter is saying, hey, I am obviously your right-hand man, uh, Jesus. If you're going to be the king, that's not the way to go about it. You're obviously mistaken. He began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, I I, I think of this, Jesus saying, I, I imagine it this way. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, he's not talking about someone else. He's talking about himself. And will be killed. And after three days, will rise again. And he begins, they're walking along the way, right? Peter then comes up and he says, Lord, you're obviously mistaken. This is not the way it's going. And it says, and Jesus, uh, and Jesus Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) One minute, Peter's on the mountaintop. You're the Christ. Next time, he's coming out of hell itself. You're Satan. Why? Because you don't have mind the things of God, but the things of man. In other words, what Peter is, what, what Jesus is wanting for his disciples to see, what Mark wants his readers to see, and what I think what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is Jesus is a king utterly different than any other kind of king who ever lived. Jesus conquers the world through servant love, through, uh, uh, through suffering even. Jesus conquers the world through the power of love, even giving himself and laying down his life for the sake of those for whom he's, call, he's being called to rescue. He is the king who is on the cross. That's not the kind of king they expected, but that was the kind of king that Jesus came to be. He said, you're thinking, you're, and this happened several times, twice or another time, you're thinking about kingship like the world thinks about kingship. We're going to talk about it later, but there's another time when uh, James and John come to Jesus and they say, this is coming up in just a couple of chapters, come back next week or the next, we'll talk about it. Uh, John and Jesus, James come and say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we have the positions of authority, one to the right and one to the left? Jesus says, you don't understand. That's the way it is in the world's kingdom. But my kingdom is upside down. In my kingdom, the greatest is the one who serves the most, the one who suffers the most, the one who gives the most, the greatest of you. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus says this is the kind of kingdom. And in fact, it is that kind of serving, giving, self-giving kingdom which changed the world. That's why we do such things as serving the poor, giving uh, uh, food away to people who need it, uh, going down to build homes in Mexico. That's why we do such things as just simply offering ourselves to people. That's why we try to have a welcoming place to meet and a welcoming, welcoming atmosphere when they, because we're here like Jesus to serve like Jesus Serve. It's an entirely different kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom altogether. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, I am the Messiah. And I will show it by giving my life for my people. And through that, the world will be changed. And in fact, it was. Yes, the beauty of this story about Jesus 
is that Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker, a great teacher, a great leader, and a system of ethics. He didn't create a new religion. He made a whole new life, a new creation. He, he gave his life to suffer under the weight of human rebellion so that it could be divested of its power, so that God's self-giving, self, uh, self, uh, not self-serving, but self-sacrificing love could become the way that this world is so that we now then don't use money to get things for ourselves, to build up our own. We'll use money what? To serve people. We don't, we don't take the gift of sexuality and use it for our own benefit, for our own selfish needs, for our own purposes, but rather it's the self giving love in the context of a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. That's the way God designed for that to be. We don't, we don't use power in the way that the world uses power by saying, bow down towards me, serve me, take care of me, meet my needs. No, we use power to use the power to what? To, to serve because that's the kind of Jesus we follow. It's the kind of revolution he began. And in fact, that's how this story closes in that he says, you know, it's not just true for me. I'm not the only one who has to give up stuff. Go to you. You want to follow me? He says he called the crowd to him with the disciples. So apparently there were people around. He called, hey, everybody, everybody gather around. we got to talk about this. Remember, he just said, who do you say that I am? Who are the disciples? Peter said, you're the Christ. He said, yes, you're right. Well, he didn't say it in this text, but he did it in another text. Um, and then he says, now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my life for people. Peter says, no way, Lord. That's not going to happen. Jesus says, that's a lie from the pit of hell, Satan. Everybody, come on around. Come on around. We're going to talk about this. And so he says, calling the crowd to him, the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take of his cross. Follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Where was ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I say to you, there are some today standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Yeah. This doesn't mean Jesus was predicting his faraway return when he'd come back. He's saying the power of the kingdom was found when Jesus was on the cross and then raised from the dead. That was the power which changed the world. You know, if you think about it, if you want to have a fruitful life, you've got to be willing to die. That is, if you're a seed, right? Seed goes in the ground, and fruit comes from it, but the, the seed dies. All of fruitfulness, all of life comes out of death. If you want to have a beautiful uh, family, you need to make a commitment to a marriage, to be a part of a family, and part of you dies, let's be honest, when you do that. Part of you gives up a future of self-determination, and yet out of that come children and grandchildren two and hopefully three or four or five, however many, and maybe great-grandchildren, but it all comes out of the self-giving love. And any of you who have had children, you know that it is a very sacrificial thing that you did. Your whole life changed. Your daughter has a little baby, and you think, oh, 
She has no idea what she's in for, right? You know that. And yet it is in the giving of ourselves that we find true joy. Yes, Jesus is letting us know how things really work in the kingdom. It's when you give. If you try to hold on, how many, how many married couples are there who have no children because they just were too? Well, I know there are married couples who have no children by no choice of their own, so I don't mean this. But I also know that there are people who are missing the joy just because they made decisions earlier in their life. How many families are missing the joy they could have because they broke up? They weren't willing to sacrifice early on. Yeah, how many seeds are still sitting without having ever really been planted? Death hurts. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to gain the world, you'll lose what really matters. But if you lose what really matters or lose the the things of this world, you will find it. Yes. Your identity, your person, your selfhood is not found by seeking after it, by giving it away in something greater than yourself. Yes. Jesus says, I am the king. I am a king on a cross, and I will give my life for the sake of this world, and I'd like you to join. Who wants to sign up? Yeah. Well, not many did, but in time, that unconditional surrender of Jesus Christ transformed the world. And literally, 2,000 years later, we still speak his name, and his truth continues to change lives. It will change yours, too as you respond in faith to him. Let's have prayer as we close our time together. Father, we're so very grateful and thankful for your self-giving love. Thank you that you are a king unlike any other king. Thank you for your self-giving love. We celebrate it today. We bow down before you, the one who gave your life for us. You've called us your bride and yourself the bridegroom. You have given your life for us. You did it on the cross. And we, your bride, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we enjoy your fellowship because of your self-giving love. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's table is available here for you, and we invite you to share.